And I need to cover your face because, again, I don't want to see you while I read this. Who's going to do the introduction? I'll do the introduction. Shut up. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 63 of the world famous Pierce Prodgorbs. Uh, I'm over at video and I podcast together with Pikachu. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you didn't see yeah. that one coming, did you? I, I did not. Wow, you caught me unawares there. <laughs> This is a Pokemon-heavy household, so I know Pikachu all too well. <laughs> Did you know that um, Alexa? Do you know, you know what Alexa is? Have you got an Alexa? I don't. Uh, no, I don't. I do know what it is, yeah. Do you know it has a Pikachu mode? Really? You have to act- yeah, you have to activate it. But, do you, you know, have well, one, man? We do, and yeah. God, it's awful. Is it? The Pikachu <sighs> mode or the... No, the Pikachu mode is quite funny, but, <laughs> but, but Alexa... As a as a thing is just although she we we, we tend to refer to her as a she she does know a lot of the music because we've already added it that we listen to because we've already added it to the playlist so uh, if I want to torture the children I play Metronomy or Kate Bush or Duran Duran and anyway <laughs> anyway in this episode it's an excellent um, child torture device we've got uh, okay so there's a, there's a long list of follow up things relating to. Uh, the last couple of episodes. Uh, hello, regular listeners. Obviously, you'll know we've had this long hiatus, and then we came back with some uh, much lauded and brilliant, uh, long-awaited, long uh, uh, <laughs> episodes. I hope everyone. Uh, I, I, I assume everyone got the reference at the start of episode sixty-two. It does. It needs no explanation, and we got lots of news and uh, stuff. Uh, have you seen Annihilation? No. Should we talk about it anyway? No. <laughs> No, you can mention it. You've seen it. Yeah, but no, we can't yeah. talk about it anyway. I haven't seen it. Um, ha- okay. So, sorry, is Annihilation on at cinema at the moment? No, no, no. no. It was out uh, probably autumn, but um, it's it was released on Netflix like a week ago. Okay. And um, so lots of, lots of people like us have been watching it. Right. Oh, well, I'll watch it then, and we'll do it for next episode. Should. You should watch it. <clears throat> okay. F you, Conway. F you, Darren. Um, do you have any FU? No, no. Okay, I, well, don't, I, do. I don't read anyone else's stuff on the internet. I don't even <laughs> read my own stuff on the internet. Right, so thank you, thank you, everyone who sent in the corrections and <laughs> stuff. Um, first of all, from way back when we were talking about the, uh, it's now been mentioned in three or four episodes, the uh, Western North American hominin butchery site that is inconsistent with you know, current thoughts on the distribution of hominins, yeah. homo sapiens around the world. I said I said some stuff about when our species first colonized North America. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned some dates and I said, I think I've got them substantially wrong. And I was right. <laughs> I got them substantially yeah, so wrong. So you were right um, all along. I was, well, well, I, okay. The reason I was, conf- the reason I got them wrong is because there's like, Okay, so the official, officially accepted date as to go uh, as goes when Homo sapiens got into North America is meant to be around about fifteen thousand years ago. So that's the official date I should have said, but I didn't. I said something twice as old as that. I think I actually can't remember. I reckon I said something twice as old. And oh. in my defence, there have been suggestions of colonisation at about thirty 
thousand years ago. Mm. There have also been suggestions of about sixty thousand years ago, and there are also even older claims as well. So there are the, there are these claims out there, but the generally accepted uh, invasion of North America is about fifteen k. Um, chameleons. So uh, thanks to Mark Shirts for the follow-up on this. When we were talking about um, the uh, bone glow stuff, the fact yeah. that, they're, that their bones are visible in UV, I said that in order to appreciate this, you need to have UV-sensitive vision and use special UV uh, lighting. No, you don't, because it's in the visible part of the UV spectrum. Now, mm-hmm. um, still, I, I, have, I don't have the paper in front of me. I'd have to check the paper a bit. Again, it's just not something I'm an expert in. But I think they're saying this means that you can act, you as a human being can actually physically see the bone glow stuff in natural light. Mm. Crazy, huh? Yeah, you clearly understand that as well. <laughs> well I didn't think we could see in UV. Uh, it's, but it's there's a part of you. We really shouldn't go into this, but there's part of the spectrum <laughs> that includes UV light that is visible to us, I think. And no, I thought that's no why, doubt. I thought that's why it was called ultraviolet because it's beyond what okay. we can see by well, definition. Well. But okay, d- well, God. yeah, stop, yeah, just stop. stop. We're going to get more follow-up, but I do <laughs> exactly. wonder whether it's um, fluorescence, so it's converting the UV light into something we can see. Sounds about right. Moving on, um, and the enantornithine. Uh, the baby that I mentioned last time, again, don't have the paper in front of me, I said that it was in keeping with previous work indicating that, that mesozoic bird babies were precocial or hyperprecocial, which, for those of you who don't know, means that they are fully formed when they, they're, they're like ready to go when they hatch and they're able to like walk and feed themselves and maybe even fly. They're really like talented. Super talented. I think they're a special baby. <laughs> uh, and I said that this new one, and don't have the paper in front of me i said that the the new one was in keeping with that no it's not it's totally not because apparently this particular taxon in keeping with the fact that enantornithines is a big group of mesozoic birds archaic birds um they uh they were diverse they were doing various different things various different body sizes and you know different anatomical adaptations and whatnot they weren't all the same and this new one apparently is in keeping with the fact that some of them weren't super precocial or precocial as babies, but they were, you know, uh, not altricial, which is the opposite of precocial, which means like defenseless little pink blobs that can't, you know, do anything apart from open their mouths. But um, uh, it was not super altricial, super precocial. I don't don't know. Again, mesococial. (laughs) Mesococial. Uh, Beelze Bufo, this giant frog, which I spoke about last time, uh, hyperosphite megafrog of Cretaceous Madagascar. I said it was gargantuan, about kilometer long. Uh, <laughs> I said it was about 60 centimeters long. And no, no it wasn't <laughs> totally wrong. Uh, that, right now, um, there's a paper published on good remains of Beelze Bufo a couple of years ago. And uh, this the paper that includes uh, – I'm deliberately not Googling any of this stuff, deliberately yeah. not looking at the papers, as is the nature of the podcast uh, from here on. Um, and uh, the authors uh, produced a really nice reconstruction, um, it's, it's, uh, kind of – it's a digital composite, different bits of different individuals scaled to the, mm-hmm. to the same yeah. size. And if you actually use their scale bar – I worked it out and got to snout vent length, so that's the 
the body of the animal, not including the hind limb stretched out behind. Snout vent length of, in their paper, the animal was about, I think, 43 centimetres long, yeah. which was in keeping with me saying, I think I said that total length of Beelzebiva was like maybe 60 centimetres. But um, uh, turns out this is wrong, and uh, they wrongly sized some elements, and they've now they now know a bit more about how big it was, and it and it was not sixty centimeters snout, uh, six centimeters toe length, or forty ish centimeters SVL snout mm-hmm. vent length. It's more actually more like like twenty to thirty centimeters snout vent length. So it's not such a mega frog after all. <laughs> but it's, it's, like it's not even that big. <laughs> No, <laughs> uh, I'm I'm a bit confused on that one, but I just wanted to mention that these supersized estimates for Beelzebufa may be incorrect. Um, but hang on, that's not really much bigger than a like a cane toad or something. Yeah, or a or a hot living horn frog, uh, or yeah. So I, I don't I don't know about that one. I don't, I'm really confused on that. I I honestly thought there were some bits that did indicate that some Beelzebufa individuals were pretty big, like snout vent length lengths of like 50 centimetres. That's what I honestly thought, and that's yeah. the impression I got from... Well, the Wikipedia page said 43 centimetres as well. Anyway, oh, okay. Oh, did it? Oh, yeah. There you go. Um, pterosaurs. So you and I had this discussion last time about wing-loading and pterosaurs, mm. and uh, a point that I wanted to make was that pterosaurs uh, are almost entirely... Um, have very uh, low wing loadings and long slim wings and we sort of agree that's as a generalization that's pretty much true for pterosaurs and I said that there aren't any pterosaurs that are um, have wing loadings similar to those of like heavy bodied modern flyers like you know ducks or whatever well I'm going to stand by that that's still pretty much true but of course hang on hang on you said all that but I said we don't know the wing loadings of very many pterosaurs because we don't know the cord depths so we don't know their wing loadings Okay. Based on the pterosaur species for which we have data, that's what this is based on. And um, you're kind of right, but I was, I, we're just thrashing over the same ground here because the I still I would still say that while your claim is half right, right, half <laughs> right. Yeah, it's like even if you the point is even if you account for those unknowns that you're flagging up, even if you account for those, and even if you do put in this, you know, come up with different models based on different wing shapes, you still don't have pterosaurs that are say super high wing loadings like eider ducks or or whatever. But I did say that I I also wanted to get across the point that that I think I said there were some caveats in that there were some pterosaurs that while they weren't necessarily like that uh oh god what did i say i don't remember what i said but i said some stuff that implied there was something that i hadn't said (laughs) (laughs) and and, okay this is from witten mark Mm. witten's zitaliana paper let you see this um, morpho space plot helpfully showing here to John, this is from the Zitaliana 2008 pterosaur special volume. Now, I forgot we did mention our neuronathids in passing, yeah, because our neuronathids um, seem to have relatively low wing loading, but there are other non pterodactyloid pterosaurs that have relatively high wing loading. So, 
in this part of the plot here, okay, so he's got so-called poor flyers in this part. These are birds with really high wing loading and low aspect ratio wings. But that diamond there is dimorphodon, Mm -hmm. and dimorphodon is in the same approximate part of morphospace or ecomorphospace as birds like tinamous, rails, and pheasants. So that does partly contradict what I was saying. Um, The presence of forms like preondactylus and eudimorphodon in this group suggests that early pterosaurs will blah 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 blah. the plotting of the morphodon among birds that have atypically high flight costs such as rails pheasants and tinamous or fly in high energy bursts of limited duration woodpeckers jacanas provides an alternative view of pterosaur flight and raises the possibility that not all pterosaurs were adept high performance flyers and then he goes on to say how this um, means that the conventional view of Dimorphodon may be incorrect, <clears throat> which is in keeping with other stuff he's published on Dimorphodon as being like a um, like scansorial, semi-terrestrial, um, you know, clambering thing in cluttered environments. Yeah. So, but just interesting that that Dimorphodon is in that part of the graph. For it to be like a really heavy-bodied flyer where the wings are supporting a large amount of mass it would have to be in like you know this this arm of the the graph here which i'm sorry that's gonna be useless yeah, yeah. Else. so in the scatter plot i'll just say most pterosaurs are sort of on the left upper left right yeah yeah upper left and dimorphodon is sort of the upper left quadrant dimorphodon is in the sort of middle middle-ish of the lower right it's it's substantially different to a lot of other pterosaurs there yeah um yeah so that's interesting and it's not really unexpected that um i had read this stuff about dimorphodon before but i'd completely forgotten um that pterosaurs are more variable than we'd think i mean (laughs) and it's been the fashion for years i guess i'm sure we'll find more like this as well Yes, I didn't. I, we we can't. It's in a. I think in a conversation with people, with a person, even it's difficult to remember all of the tangents. I mean, obviously we go off on enough tangents anyway, but you just can't come back to everything. And I just I should have mentioned Dimorphodon in that discussion, but I didn't. So there we go. And of course that paper is that's two thousand eight. Well, of course Mark has since published like a, a another. <clears throat> uh, paper or two on Dimorphodon uh, and its lifestyle and appearance and biology and whatnot, including in that new Geological Society volume, I think. Have you got that? No. No, neither have I. Uh, th- <sighs> so there's this... Okay, this, the Geological Society of London, they publish these beautiful hardbound compilations of papers. And again, there's a specific episode where... John and I talk about this. The volumes are like sixty pounds each. So again, this is a this is a uh, this is a big deal to me. It's like oh, well, oh I'm interested in that. Yeah, I need to know learn about that. Well, you can't. You, you're not going to. No, screw you. You're just not going to get it. Okay. Having said that, people do very kindly make the PDFs of the individual articles available, uh, and on a, and occasionally these volumes are offered at like half price, which is you know f- affordable. I'm, Thirty pounds is within my book buying budget, but um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's. Just, I just don't think it's a way. It's a good way of doing science. It's just not. There you go. It's it's antithetical to uh, the uh, general project. Uh, anyway, right. So that is. So that's the end of Fu. That's the end of that chapter. Hey, that's my thing. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how a bill becomes a law. 
I say that as well. That's <laughs> stop. Hey, stop stealing my favourite phrases. <laughs> um, news from Darren and John. Mm. Do you have any news from Darren and John? No. In fact, I don't even know what most of these are, Darren. Ah, <laughs> well, that's why it's all written in code. <laughs> oh, well, I know what snow is. Do you want to talk about snow? Not really. You can talk about <laughs> snow. You probably did some interesting things. I just looked at it. Well, the, the, the reason I've put it down there is not because I want to necessarily talk about the weather or the conditions here in southern England, but uh, because of the, the global, like, the, the story climate stuff to use the technical term. Mm-hmm. So to those, to, those who, to those who aren't in uh, Western Europe, it's uh, snowed a crap ton here, here in late March 2018. And this is not typical. This is really weird. As some of you know, Western Europe and also the eastern seaboard of North America and presumably elsewhere in North America, who knows what goes on in that crazy place. But... Um, yeah, we're, ha- we're having really cold uh, time of the year, and uh, I just th- I, I I kind of don't need to say this, but it's like in view of the significance of climate change and pollution and all the things related to climate change, we know full well that there are certain you know people who deny the significance and, and impact of climate change that point to this cold weather as like well no come on it's it's cold today it was cold in 1963 it was cold in 1975 what is it's like clearly yeah sometimes it's warm sometimes it's cold uh but the really interesting thing about this um weird cold right now is that it's a seemingly i mean there's good data on this there are some really interesting studies on this it's a consequence of overall warming so the warming of our planet results in cold being pushed out of the arctic so again i'm sure that anybody who's scientifically literate knows this but the arctic has just had it's like you know warmest winter ever uh, I, I forget i uh, i did read exactly how much warmer it is something crazy like 15 degrees c warmer this winter in the Arctic than is expected. You know, some places in the Arctic are like about freezing rather than like minus 30 mm-hmm. degrees C. Uh, and the, um, the, an interesting thing, interesting as in like really, really worrying is that cold is being quotes in quotes pushed out of the Arctic either because of an overall warming trend or because the jet stream this uh, circum um, polar kind of uh, you know warm air uh, cold high altitude air current is weakening due to uh, warming and is not keeping cold air trapped in the Arctic so um the, I, I'm sure this is the sort of thing that you would predict that uh, overall warming leads to local cooling we know these systems are really complex but um uh, so you know what's that film the day after tomorrow basically yeah. that's, that's that's the next phase that's really documentary, isn't it? really isn't it? yeah yeah that's brilliant what, that's what's about to happen brilliant documentary yeah so uh, um yeah okay yeah so well no, no that's, think- that's pretty interesting um yeah the jet stream weakening and the cold air falling out 
Yeah, well, the day after tomorrow is based on something that's also been seriously discussed, which is the idea that um, melting Arctic ice puts a crap ton of fresh water into the North Atlantic that causes the um, the other stream. The Gulf the, the Stream. One, the Gulf Stream, yeah, it causes the Gulf Stream, which is warm water from the Caribbean-ish region to flow into the North Atlantic and keep places like the UK warm, that, 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 that could turn off. And if that turns off, then you've got... The UK is at the. Are we at the same latitude as places like Newfoundland? I think we are, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. Oh God, yeah, we're so far north. Yeah, really far north. <clears throat> yeah, so we should be freezing cold, and we're not. We're yeah. we're temperate, yeah. and uh, that's the consequence of the Gulf Stream. Turn the Gulf Stream off, and uh, uh, the Mediterranean the U- as well, right? The Mediterranean cu- climate. You know, I think, um, for example, Madrid is the same level as New York. Now, you right. don't get freezing winters and snow. Um, yeah. And you look at the coastal areas in Spain and in, you know, Italy, and they're not like that at all. So, yeah, it would be, Mm. if it stopped, it would be really drastic, drastically Mm. different weather for Europe. Yeah. And probably the reason Europe is such a good place for, you know, the good economic position it's been in for the last... um, over many thousands of years, you you wouldn't have all these you know navies and uh, people going out colonising the rest of the world if if they didn't have you know, all these fantastic harbours that were available year round because like yeah yeah Port- Portugal and Spain as well as the UK and France and Germany um, think think how different things would be if they were ice locked for like you know months of the year which they generally are not at all. Yes, and when you're having to battle minus 30 degree temperatures, your huge amount of your economic output is just staying warm, right? It's just a big tax on your effort all the mm. time. And Europe, especially Southern Europe, hasn't had to deal with that. Okay, so that's item number one in news from there. Item number two, the, f- okay, the Ford debate. Yeah, I wasn't clear what this is, and now I now I remember. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so so those of you who we try not to talk too much about Mesozoic dinosaurs in the podcast because otherwise that's probably all we talk about. But um, uh, so Brian Ford, uh, I discussed him previously. Do you remember which episode? No, one one of the episodes, and he's this interesting person. And uh, in having learned a lot about him in general, I kind of am inclined to think that he might no caveats there might be a force for good because he generally seems to be interested in the promotion of of science and citizen science so that's all great and he does talk about some interesting stuff i find it hard to work out which side he approaches things whether he does actually truly come at it from like a skeptical rational perspective or whether it's some some kind of weird personal take he has on some of these discussions for example i'm thinking about his stuff on spontaneous human combustion i haven't looked into that but i i'm not sure whether he's coming at that from a but okay tangent um what does he say for, about spontaneous oh, that's, that's why i stopped talking about it because i can't no, remember but you, no, what, you know you've left it dangling now you have to say briefly what it is okay so because otherwise your previous stuff doesn't really make sense to me or uh, jesus all right so spontaneous human combustion um like the main crux the main the main issue with the whole concept is does it even exist and my understanding is it doesn't what's happened is that there have been cases where people have been found burnt and they've burnt 
to, you know, their bodies have been destroyed by fire. Yeah. So what that tells you is sometimes bodies get burnt by fire, right? <laughs> Which I, th- if it, if there wasn't a term SHE, spontaneous human combustion, if that didn't exist, we wouldn't be ever talking about it. It's like, you know, sometimes people die because they fall out of windows. Sometimes they drown in lakes. Sometimes they get caught on fire. And after hours of burning, their bodies, their bodies are broken up. But to think that there is, there is a phenomenon that we need to find a special explanation for, that is the contention. And he seems to, again, and this is why I didn't want to talk about it, I'm hazy on this, I think he's of the contention that there is a specific phenomenon that you need to find a special answer for. And among the community of researchers involved, a favoured hypothesis is what's called the human wick effect, which is the idea that due to clothing and body fat, uh, we can catch fire um, kind of while we're asleep and are too close to a fire or after we die and then your body kind of burns slow and cool so your body human wick effect because you burn kind of like a candle you burn for like a day but never enough heat to you know damage the surroundings and like i say i can't remember what side of the debate he's on i just know that he's done some research on it and and it seems to me to be thinking that there is a phenomenon that needs explaining and um, clearly clearly i'm not an expert on this but um there no, you go so okay uh so yeah um i thought the wick effect was real i, I thought they'd done experiments and they'd shown that it exists whether that is what's going on in all cases of so-called spontaneous human, human combustion is up for debate i think but it does happen this I'm, weird I'm sort a... of fat burning thing on clothes right i i remember there being a case how crazy is this as a tangent? But I remember there being a case where a, a murder victim was discovered and the murderer had um, tried to destroy her body by setting fire to it. And when investigators like found the body, they, they um, don't, don't ask me why, but they decided the best thing to do is let it burn and watch what, <laughs> watch what happened. Maybe because they actually needed to study this as part of the case they were building against the murderer i don't know but um but it and it burnt slowly over days and i also remember a laboratory experiment where people burnt a, a pig corpse yeah. and again it burnt slowly and it seemed to be in keeping with the human work effect but i, I don't know i don't know whether that's there, there seems to be this idea that people spontaneously oh, jesus christ let's stop let's stop well, they're that. two different okay. things aren't they anyway let's go yeah it's there's the method for burning <laughs> and then that's the how did it start but anyway okay <laughs> And you don't remember his position anyway. I don't remember his position, but uh, so uh, but Brian Ford has like the last several years made a name for himself by going around and giving these talks on dinosaurs, and he contends that all paleontologists have got dinosaurs wrong, and that they're in some kind of cabal to ignore the obvious truth, which is that dinosaurs were a hundred percent aquatic; they were specialised aquatic animals. He seems to imagine them as like a sort of unusual kind of wading aquatic life where they're living, walking around in like water up to their shoulders all the time. And, um, and he says that, that he's the first person ever to come up with this idea and, that and all the evidence fits with it. And, um, uh, I think this is, uh, completely wrong for numerous reasons. I've written, I was, I was asked to produce, um, a uh, like a published response to his initial claim, which was published in Laboratory News, 
Um, so that's an invited response. I didn't offer to do it. And I first of all turned it down because I thought I'm not giving this the time of day. It's a lot of crap. But um, eventually I decided, no, the better thing is to respond because <clears throat> I knew the people that he would get to respond. It wouldn't do a particularly good job. I know that sounds arrogant, but whatever. And I've heard him give the talk uh, on his idea. And uh, so I've like heard him say the same stuff. And um, OK, so he's got a book out published by HarperCollins, which is a very prestigious, good publisher. Mm. And it's called, I think it's called Too Big to Walk. And it seems to be the same thing again. His 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 main argument is that dinosaurs are all so big yeah. that they, using his voice there, mm. they are so big that they couldn't possibly walk around on land. They're so heavy. They uh, just, their tails are too big, you see. And uh, it's like, no, you know, <laughs> he he doesn't he doesn't know or credit that we went through this phase decades of the 20th century where people thought that not all, but they thought that most large dinosaurs were fully aquatic. He doesn't seem to be aware of that and has even denied it in his own talks. He seems to just have this assertion that dinosaurs are too big. He doesn't seem to be aware of stuff like, you know, basics of like McNeil Alexander's work on bone strength and, you know, mm. the fact that people have repeatedly tested the possibility that dinosaurs of all kinds uh, were mechanically able to support their weight. And evidently they were. And then he also just poo-poos and dismisses the other lines of evidence, like the actual evidence from trackways and, uh, you know, feeding behavior and egg sites and stuff. Um, anyway, so... The publishers have got him. He's, he's just amazingly good at promoting himself. I really don't know how he does it um, because he's doing a lecture tour on the back of this book, which is not good news if you're interested in the promotion of science and you know rational approach to subjects and what we actually know. Mm. And um, he's been asked to give a talk at Conway Hall, which to those of you who don't know, that's, that is uh, John's uh, family residence in uh, uh, London. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, it's, it's well. We can pretend that it is if you like, but it's, <laughs> but it is actually it's a, it's a famous um, like debate and lecture hall in uh, uh, Red Lion Square. Where is that in London? It's, it's oh, central well, London. Central London, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and uh, the organisers thought that rather than just let Ford present his stuff and sell lots of his books, they thought it's actually fair and appropriate that he be challenged. So the organisers contacted me, and I agree with them. I think this is a fair thing to do. I think okay, we can't stop him giving lectures on this. Yeah. It would be wrong to do that, and you know, how do you do that anyway? The publishers and him obviously want the book to be promoted, so that talk's not going to happen anyway, but it is definitely in... It's in my interest and it's in our collective interest, I, I would argue, for him to be challenged. So what's happening on May the 15th at Red uh, at um, Conway Hall, Red Line Square, London, um, Ford and I are both presenting at the same event. And and I immediately said that I've got to go last. I've got to – because he's, he's going to say stuff. I know, I know what he's going to say. I've read all his stuff. I've heard him say it before. I have to respond to it. And he and the publishers, uh, they're, um, they're not happy about this. And their, um, their insistence was that Brian Ford go last. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, that's not happening. 
he's been given ample opportunity to present this i must go last and if i'm not going last i'm not doing it and um the the organizer took that back to the publishers and they said oh, okay then so that is what's happening good so um i mm. and don't, and don't to those to those people who you know throw in all these cautionary things or don't be mean to him don't be rude you know do this do that do that it's like yeah i i have actually you know given talks on many previous occasions i know, I know how to debate with people and how blah 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 so it's it, it should be quite interesting and um and I want it to be filmed and put online. So, so there you go. That's the Forge debates. Good. That'll be fun. Yeah. Uh, today is the 20th of March. On the 1st of April, April Fool's Day, um, I'm on live TV, a thing called Sunday Brunch, which I think is like a chat show in the middle of the day on Channel 4 or something, talking about dinosaurs in the wild. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the funny thing to do at this point would be to spend 20 minutes talking about dinosaurs in the wild because I've now done that like at least three times on the podcast <laughs> and that reminds me that did you hear there's a new tape here is there I'll come back to that later on okay so I'm on live TV on April the 1st and April the 1st now uh, also I just want to mention briefly here that um, those of you who read Tetrapodzoology the blog and you kind of should read it if you listen to the podcast. That's kind of one of the conditions. Is so, it? It's the condition. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, ordinarily on April 1st, I do a special, very special article that's uh, you know, uniquely written for that date. And uh, if you are unaware of these, dear listener, then go back and check out various April 1st articles I've published over the past, Jesus, 12 years of blogging. But this year, guess what? It's, uh, it's no more. Not doing it anymore. I'm stopping it. Uh-huh. I'm stopping that the tradition of April Fool's uh-huh. articles. Do you know why? Why? Well, why do you think? <laughs> Fake news, John. Fake, <laughs> Fake news. news. Fake news is an epidemic, and it's not a joke. It's a serious problem. And there have been studies showing that fake news um, is like more pervasive and insidious and longer lasting and more disseminable than non-fake news. So David Steen, who's very active on social media, uh, tweets at, I think, alongside Wild. Uh, David Steen um, tweeted about two weeks ago. He said, like, I really hate these scientific April Fool's jokes. Why do people do them? Idiots. <laughs> it's really bad in an era of fake news. That's all. <laughs> You know, he might have a point, actually. I thought about it a little bit more. And uh, it's been a good thing for me, April Fool's. You know, I think it's fun. It's a massive in-joke. And the people who get it, like, really like it. But then, of course, there's a lot of people that don't get it. And they find these articles. They say, what? Makila Mbambi is real and disproves evolution? Really? That was published in Nature? (laughs) What? Oh, yeah, there's a technical paper. Look, there's a technical paper. It's got a citation. Wow. I didn't know that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that happens all the time. Amphisbanians? Mammals Amphisbanians? Did you know that? They email me and say, I hadn't heard this. I hadn't heard this. Can you send me this textbook that proves that mammals are Amphisbanians? Uh-huh. And, that, and that the Mongolian deathworm is a key integral transitional animal in the evolution of mammals from Amphisbanians. I say, yeah, yeah, look, there's published, you know, all the citations. 
So what? That's amazing. I didn't know that. This oh, is thanks. all just a great big setup so you can fool us real good, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it should be. It, that that would be the ultimate payoff, but that's – no, I'm serious. I'm actually not doing it anymore, for, specifically for this fake news reason. And, um, yeah, so I need to um, get back to, to David on this because, uh, yeah, I think he's writing an article about it. Spoilers. Um, D-H-T-L-E, what's that? Yeah, well, you should know it is dinosaurs, how they lived and evolved. Oh, Okay. I just think Which, of that as dinosaurs. Okay, so the Natural History Museum book, Dinosaurs, How They Lived and Evolved, by Darren Nation, Paul Barrett, the best dinosaur book out there, um, is going to second edition. Have I mentioned this before on the podcast? Mm, no, I don't think so. Okay, so new cover. Good. Bob Nichols has been commissioned to do a brand new cover, and he's finishing it. He'll have it finished in the next couple of days, and we're not going to. We're keeping it secret until it's done. Mm-hmm. So, well, to those of you who know this book, describe the cover, John. It's a hideous, arg, roaring carcarodontosaur with its mouth open right at you, right at you. <laughs> Look at its teeth. Look at its tongue. Look at its eye. <laughs> but its eye. Look at its. It's sad. Its eye is sad. It's a bit sad, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, this dinosaur, uh, without with all due respect to the, the the people who chose it, and and I, and I, you know, I'm partly culpable. I did sort of finally say, yeah, all right, let's go with it then. Um, they use this because it's they own this image, and so this same dinosaur image is on the kids' T-shirts and pyjamas and stuff. It appears in the movie Jurassic World, this actual image, mm-hmm. in the shop. And uh, there's there's giant, like, cardboard cutouts of it that you can see in the Natural History Museum in London. Um, but um, John, in fact, gave a whole talk slating this uh, <laughs> as, an, as, as an example of how uh, um, awesome bro culture even has sway over otherwise quality content so a priority was to change the cover and uh, we got bob nichols to do a new one so that's great news and that's the good. cover will be oh <laughs> took a vote on the Techboard zoology facebook group see what people wanted and then went with what well, i liked anyway <laughs> 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 um but um paul and i uh, have also like we've we've done this as best we could you can never because obviously, you know, that book was published like you know, more than a year ago or two years ago even. It's like a lot's, a lot's changed in the world of dinosaur science since then. So we got a whole load of corrections and updates and things that we've uh, crowbarred in. Of course, the primary thing is the Ornithoskeleta event, mm-hmm. which um, John and I have discussed on the podcast before. That is uh, mentioned in there and loads of other things are uh, as well. And we've even changed a few pictures and got a few of the cladograms tweaked and stuff like that so um uh, enough changes for it to be classed properly as a second edition so apologies to the people who bought the first edition but you know hey it's not my fault that we learn new stuff and the other thing in uh news from darren john oh yeah what's new at tet zoo and i missed out the word new there <laughs> what's, what's new that at tet, tet zoo, zoo? <laughs> what's new at tet zoo because just because like this is a tie-in with the podcast and you gotta read the blog otherwise i won't do it so this month march i've always wanted to write about legwatia legion and 
what a cool, I think this is a cool story, and I'm really happy I covered it. And I checked to see if anyone else has covered it, and they hadn't. So I thought I'll cover it because if someone, I always find if someone else has covered something. Yeah, John, you're googling it now because you haven't read it. You no, I haven't read it. Of course, I haven't. <laughs> but this is a really cool story. Find the Enigma of Leguatia, six foot tall Mauritian super rail. So, for a time, um, people honestly believed that on the island of Mauritius, not only was there dodos and large weird uh, rails and tortoises and whatnot, but they also believed there was this six foot tall white super rail hmm. known as Le Gion or uh, properly Leguatia Gigantia the giant bird of Mauritius reported by Hougenot refugee Francois Leguat <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce his surname <laughs> he supposedly observed this bird in the 1690s described it as 1.8 metres tall long long necked long legged white thing and he produced an illustration of it as this giant long toed huge bird and um people said you sure that's not a flamingo <laughs> <laughs> and some people said it's clearly a flamingo and he just made a mistake but other people said hey, it can't be a flamingo because he drew it with long toes and does that look like a flamingo to you no so you have two traditions emerging from that you in the in the 19th and 20th century you got one set of researchers that say look it's just a flamingo he made a mistake. It wasn't a, a weird six-foot-tall white super rail. And then you had other people, most famously Hachuska, who wrote this um, very peculiar 1953 book, The Dodo and Kindred Birds, Masuji Hachuska, Japanese. And Hachuska and some other authors said that, yeah, there's a six-foot-tall white rail. It was like a giant moorhen, six foot tall, white. Wow. And I'm like, the, the point of my article is to say, let's propose, let's, let's say that's just true. That there was a two meter tall white super rail on Mauritius, mm -hmm. which is unknown from any material evidence, no bones or anything. It's like, this is one of the most incredible birds ever. It's like, you know, nearly as tall as an ostrich, flight capable. Not only is it evidence for island giantism in rallids in rails but think of all the questions about you know biomechanics and, and you know space in the ecosystem occupied all these sorts of things yeah well the people that thought it was real never discussed any of that so you never had any of the speculations that you should have had about its flightability and its ecology and the backstory to its evolution but of course the disappointing thing is that yeah it, it indeed almost definitely was based on a on flamingos because flamingos we now know from bones the greater flamingo was present on mauritius in the 1600s and 1700s they were hunted to extinction they're not there anymore um and the illustration that's lego lego how do you I don't, how do you reckon you say that name french is, yeah sorry <laughs> we speak french Legua, Legua, yeah, Legua, probably, yeah. Because French is one of those lazy languages where they just don't bother to pronounce the stuff at the end. Yeah, That's there's right. a T on there, but who needs that? Legua, yeah. I don't know. But um, yeah, he Legua copied a previous illustration from the 1500s of a weird bird, which is probably a rail of some kind. It was known as the Avis Indica. It's published in 15. I don't know, 1590s or something. 
And he just copied that and supersized it to the size of his Gion. And uh, so mm-hmm. it's a really it's a really interesting story of like uh, a half remembered recollection combined with a copying of an illustration combined with some people that were credulous enough to just take this at face value. Mm-hmm. Whereas those who are skeptical appropriately skeptical right from the start probably got the right or almost definitely got the right identification that that these were greater flamingos yeah i think the crucial thing here is that the picture looks pretty good you know it looks like it's got a lot of detail the original picture here yeah and therefore people go but that's not a flamingo and why has it got all this detail like this doesn't match a flamingo at all once you find that it's copied from another illustration you realize oh it's because it's a copy it's got all that detail right it's a copy of a different bird um, so how tall is a greater flamingo? Um, uh, I think like they can with the with the neck outstretched, they can yeah. be like I don't know one point four meters, I guess. Not one point eight meters six foot, I don't think. But they're yeah, I could see a big one getting up there, like one point six or something. That I'm thinking about yeah, well, yeah, maybe. Okay, yeah. So there's that. What's the biggest rail? Uh, Takahi, which is a, a large New Zealand um, flightless, bulky-bodied rail, which I would guess standing height is probably going on for, oh, I don't know, I'm going to say 60 centimetres. That's yeah. my favourite length. Yeah, that sort of, <laughs> but it's a squat bird. What's it's the tallest rail? Dumpy. Well, no, that's, that would be the tallest as the well. The tall as well, right? There's not a, like, so, a less dumpy one. No, I don't think so. There are, there are some other large rallids, uh, you know, leggier and longer build and slender like weckers on uh, New Zealand and uh, clapper rails and so on, but they're not taller than the Takahi. So there's nothing approaching like, you know, two meter tall giant style thing. So, so why did everyone jump on rail rather than uh, something else? Because those crazy feet that legois illustrated show that that's the only thing it can be i think um but he never identified it and then it's yeah. later authors who write about it like uh, uh um antun cornelius udemans a uh, famous biologist who wrote about loads of things is best known for his work on sea serpents udemans tried to classify it in the 1900s and said oh it mu- based on these features it must be a rallied mm. and walter rothschild who wrote about it said it must be a rallied okay. so you just had these authors saying that yeah based and, th- and they're basing it on the I- illustration which was an illustration of a rallied because it was copied from the collette's 1500s avis indica illustration which is of a rallied so um i like so you know without tooting my own trumpet or whatever the phrase is i think this is a a really interesting and cool little weird obscure story and i i i wasn't i'm not aware of it being covered elsewhere in review fashion there's obviously like books and articles here and there that talk about it but uh so i was pleased to cover that on tetsu um yeah, and then I also also in March. Uh, to those who don't know, I have to publish four blog articles a month. I'd like to put lots more time into it, but I really struggle to find the time to do the, the blog these days. Um, I also recycled the text that was in, meant to be that was written for Dinosaur Art Two, um, and it's a biographical summary of uh, my adventures with Mark Witten. Again, again, Witten. Jesus Christ! So it's a it's a. It's a sycophantic love letter to Mark Whitten and how awesome he is. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> Get a room, you two. 
<laughs> well, uh, so there you go. Uh, and what's next at Tetsi in March 2018? Well, let's just find out. I don't know. I haven't read it yet. <laughs> okay. Great April so Fool's Fool's article. Yeah, well, no, because I've got to do the two more articles for March before April, right? March comes before April. How's it going with those jingles you're working on? Jingles? Jingles. Yeah, yeah, that's not happening. Okay, so insert here the news from the Word of News one. News from the Word of News. That was great. Yep. So, news from the Word of News, the next section of the show. Um, There's three things I want to talk about. Three things. Yeah, and I'm going to keep to the two-minute rule. No, you're not. You just watch. Right, I'm going to open stopwatch. Stop. Watch. <laughs> Hold on. This is kind of breaking the point of the two-minute rule right here. Oh, shush, shush. Right. Uh, why is it already... Uh, something's been running for 17 minutes. Okay. Play stopwatch. Number one... Have you ever heard of Kendites? No. Uh, okay, well. Is it a fish? <laughs> fish on the podcast. You've stopped. You've put a stop to that. You put your foot down on that. I'm going to read you the section on Kendites from the bird section of Tetsu Big Book, my working uh, giant project on uh, vertebrate fossil record. <clears throat> uh-huh. By far the best-known fossil sea duck, though read on, is the flightless Kendites lawi, sometimes called Law's diving goose, and initially regarded as a goose by some authors, from the upper Pleistocene and Holocene of coastal California and its offshore islands. Reduced medullary cavities in its leg bones and reduced wings demonstrate specialisation for a diving lifestyle, and it was larger than any extant sea duck, with an estimated mass of 2.5 to 3.7 kilos. Livesy, 1993. Hey. A second specialised species, Kendites milleri, is known from the lower Pleistocene. Some remains of Kendites lawi are just circa 2,400 years old. It appears to have been hunted by people for around 8,000 years and to have been gradually driven to extinction. Jones et al. 2008. Kendites has consistently been regarded as a member of Mergini, that is the sea duck clade, on the basis of its anatomical similarity with scoters and eiders. However... Some remains of Kendites loi are young enough that DNA has been incorporated, has been recovered, even. And stop reading there because this is why we come to this being uh, a newsy thing. Because a paper just published, like within the last week or so, by Janet Buckner and colleagues in Molecular Phylogenetics and Evolution, mitogenomics supports an unexpected taxonomic relationship. Come back to that. For the extinct diving duck Kendoites loi, and it definitively places the extinct Labrador duck. Um, okay, so as I've just read, I've just set up the background here. Kendoites has always been regarded on anatomical basis as a member of Mergini, as a sea duck. But in this new paper, um, uh, Buckner et al., they got some DNA out of uh, Holocene bones of this animal. And now I'll continue reading. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Surprisingly, this indicates that it is the sister taxon to, pause for effect, the dabbling duck clade, Amatini, Buckner et al., 2018. If this is correct, its perceived similarity to Mergines, 
C-dux, are convergent. Furthermore, its position as the sister taxon of Anatini, the dabbling duck clade, requires a ghost lineage for Kendites of circa 20 million years since members of Anatini referred to tax like Anas, Sensulato, are known from the lower Miocene. So this is this is a big deal in the fossil duck world. Mm-hmm. It's like Kendites. Kendites isn't a sea duck. It's an early diverging member of the dabbling duck clade, convergently similar to dab to sea ducks and it's like oh great this is another one of those things where the anatomical data is pretty good and the anatomical signal signal is really strong but according (laughs) to according to the dna eh -eh, nope yeah convergence Mm. it does really make you wonder about stuff doesn't it but I do feel like birds are a bit of a special case because they're so anatomically constrained. And (laughs) their anatomy is not allowed to do certain things. There There are only one way to do certain things for birds because they've got all these constraints of flight. So as soon as you start doing something that another bird is doing, you look almost identical to it. I'm guessing that is something going on with birds that you get less with mammals, less with, well, non-flighted animals, is what I'm thinking. Okay. And that's yeah. why you're constantly getting this re- real surprises in the bird um, phylogeny. This, this, is, this is one of those things where, to be fair to everyone, um, moving kendites from sea ducks to dabbling ducks is a move across two nodes. Mm. So it's like in the in the it's not like we're radically wrong and mm. kendites is actually a monotreme or is actually <laughs> yeah. a heron. Yeah, uh, it is still a member of that duck clade anatidae. It's just in a different air quotes subfamily or quotes tribe. It's just been moved a small distance, but it's still enough that you know we were pretty confident that it was a sea duck. Uh, and bear in mind, okay, this is like one study so far. It's not like you know there are there are DNA studies that have proven to be they've they've not used enough genetic data or they've been misled by convergence in you know the DNA signature or what or whatever. But uh, and what's the problem with the title? Mitogenomics supports an unexpected taxonomic relationship for the extinct diving duck. No, no. dear Janet Buckner and, and colleagues, it's not. It's not. The taxonomic relationship—that's a phylogenetic relationship. Taxonomy is about naming. That—that's the naming is the person-made construct on top of the phylogeny, right? Ah, uh, so, well, so, to be strictly, uh, yeah, I think taxonomy is the groupings we give things, and nomenclature is the names we give those things. So. I remember this from debates where you know people are talking about like the phyla code and all that stuff, and they're saying yeah. that isn't a taxonomy. There is no taxonomy. They're natural groups. It's nomenclature on top of phylogeny. There's no taxonomy going on. No, no, no. Isn't that the debate over the use of the term phylogenetic nomenclature, which they're saying isn't taxonomy? Yes. Because so. What- because you can have nomenclature without taxonomy as the argument. So taxonomy is, in fact, the group, the artificial grouping of things. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, well, well, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's not in, that's not disagreeing with what I said because I'm saying taxonomy is just the names we slap on things. No, no, taxonomy is the groups we put things into. The names we slap on are, is the nomenclature. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So. 
but I'm going to have to think about they that. They should have, yeah. They, I mean, what they meant was phylo, the phylogenetic relationship. They didn't. They didn't mean the taxonomy. Taxonomic relationship. Yeah. No. Well, what does taxon mean? Tax, tax, taxon. I, I know what taxon means, but I mean, what literally does like the the Greek or Latin root of it mean? Yeah, okay. All right. So that's a <laughs> seven minutes that discussion. Thanks, John. All right. So there you go. Kendites. Um, back to the agenda. Oh dear, where's my emails? There we go. Ankylosaurids. Ankylosaurids. <clears throat> Let's just reset the stopwatch. <laughs> Do you ever listen to Stuart Lee? No. Okay. Sorry. This stopwatch is really bad. Where's uh, my phone? Good. I'm just going to... Okay. Yeah. Okay, so... So... Um, uh, a, a bunch of really interesting things have been happening with. Okay, start start watching. Uh, a bunch of really interesting things have happened with uh, late Cretaceous ankylosaurid ankylosaurs. So ankylosaurs, armored dinosaurs, best well known for being predominantly quadrupedal, covered in spikes and plates and whatnot. Ankylosaurids, the group of relatively short-headed um, ankylosaurs that often have tail clubs, and. In the last two uh, geological sections of the Cretaceous, the Campanian and Restrictian, um, conventionally people named a bunch of taxa, Dioplosaurus, Scolosaurus, Anodontosaurus, Eopocephalus, Ankylosaurus. Then a guy called Walter Coombs, who I believe was married to Marjorie Coombs that we mentioned in the previous episode when discussing Calicathias. Um Walter Coombs, I could be wrong there, but that's my thinking. Um Walter Coombs uh, revised ankylosaurids in the 70s and he went on a mass lumping spree and he lumped all of those Campanian Restrictian taxa into just two species, uh, Euoplocephalus in the Campanian and Ankylosaurus in the Mastrictian. Okay, those aren't species, but whatever, you know what I'm talking about here. Euoplocephalus tutus and Ankylosaurus magniventris. Okay, if you want the specifics. But what's happened in the last several years is uh, new research and new discoveries, much of it by Ankylosaur specialist Victoria Arbor, has seen new taxa be uh, named or resurrected. So Anodontosaurus is now back in business. Um, Zool Kruerivastator, named after the character from Ghostbusters, is a new, uh, is it a, a late Campanian uh, taxon ankylosaurid? There's so there's like a, a new ta- new things being recognised from previously synonymised taxa and new ones being named and there's there's others as well. This new paper by Paul Penkowski, who's been working on ankylosaurids uh, in addition to Arbor and colleagues, he just published revised systematics of the armadonosaur Euopocephalus and its allies, and he pulls a load more out of synonymy. So in 2014, he named an animal called. I always struggle to say it correctly. Uhotokia. Uhotokia horneri, named after Jack Horner, the best, uh, most famous paleontologist in history of paleontology. Um, and he names like a bunch of new taxa within these. He, he, saw, he, he, he emphasizes the fact that, you know, Coombs's lumping was over lumping and that there's, if you just look at the variation in these animals, there's more new taxa to find. So he names another species of Scolosaurus, Scolosaurus thronus, uh, another Dioplosaurus, I think. Di- 
no, no, and another, not another Anodontosaurus, Anodontosaurus Inceptus, named after his favourite movie, Inception. Um, no, it's not. And he also names Platypelta coomzi, which is a totally new taxon. There has been a, like a little bit of. Um, mild professional disagreement between Arbor and colleagues and uh, Penkowski and colleagues and there's sort of like lightly barbed comments made about things said by the other uh, author in in their papers and uh, uh, Arbor and colleagues did sink um, Penkowski's tax on Uhokotia Jesus Christ down where is it uho tokia uho tokia okay look i'll stop there but the, okay yeah. more ankylosaurids is the story in the campaign Restriction. well but yeah let's go ahead sorry well okay but the reason this paper is okay so this is low level taxonomic wrangling of the sort we love to discuss on the podcast <laughs> he has <laughs> he has this section of the paper where he says he says, am I right in – because basically this, they're now – this group is another one of these groups that's getting to the stage where it's like now hyper-splitting is the norm, where people find that, that there are some specimens where they've got these bony plates covering like the snout region, and in some of them there's two bony plates and then a little tiny one in the middle. And then in others there's two bony plates but a great big one in the middle, and they say, oh, the one with the great big plate, that's a new taxon. So the concern is, are you sure you're not hyper-splitting – you know, and the the variations concerned are actually, you know, population level. Population as in like not a species, as in like you know things that aren't species. They're lower lower level than species. And he has this long discussion about what's been happening in uh, extant megafauna of late. And he talks about the work that's been done on splitting the Loxodonta taxa the african forest elephant versus the savannah elephant the uh white rhino claims which i've just written about at length uh, on tet zoo the the idea that giraffes might be multiple species and right get this he talks about this this tape here in 2013 coswell et al described a new species of south american tapir formerly assumed to be a variety of taparus terrestris so had you heard about this it's like a new species of tapir uh-huh uh, I'll stop. <laughs> I think, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's interesting the animals that have something complicated going on. I think ceratopsins are another example of this, right? There's display structures or structures where it's not clear whether this is highly variable. Amongst individual to individual, we don't even really know very well, I think. The ceratopsins probably helped out by big bone beds, but I, even then, I don't know. It's like a lot of those bone beds are a big mess. Um, it feels like the low-level taxonomic wrangling with this stuff will never even approach a consensus, I don't think. People will just get sick of it. Because you can always split or lump or split or lump. I just, I don't know. I don't feel like there's going to be a resolution here. Even if they were alive and you had access to their entire genetics and you could watch them in the wild and what they mate with, people would still debate about it, let alone um, finding, you know, incomplete specimens that might be the only one of their species, you know, or just like, oh, my God, what a mess. Well, okay, we have covered the species debate, I don't know how many times, on the podcast before. Um, And, okay, 
there, there, there isn't going to be a solution, but the best solution would be if we didn't have the word species, because the problem is we've got this idea that there are these units, there are these populations, and that they're consistent across the board, across across all organisms, and transparently they're not. And when it comes to questions like this pertaining to anatomical differences in fossils, we would be honest if we admitted that there are these morphologically different units which we are hypothesizing are biological entities and that they're different from other morphologically differentiable units but whether they are species in the same way that like modern units are species we literally cannot test that because we can't see we're not seeing the whole anatomy something paleontologists often don't mention you know we're only seeing like we're only seeing the bony anatomy when people say, oh, there's no signal in the anatomy at all. Now, you mean there's no signal in the skeleton? How do you know the evolution isn't happening in the integument, in the organs, in the pheromones, Christ, whatever? Um, and, and obviously you can't observe behavior and who's mating with who and how viable hybrids are and, and all that kind of stuff. So the things that we're calling species in fossils are unashamedly morphologically differentiable units are they the same as living species? So, you know, Penkowski there comparing it to populations of elephants and giraffes, that might be fine. He might be absolutely right, but it might be, they might be completely different phenomena. Um, but I don't see any harm in you saying that there is this unit and we have, we have got no solution other than to pretend or not pretend. Uh, what do I mean? I mean like, um, uh, provisionally state that we're accepting that as a unit and I'm going to give it this label. Yeah, although I think there are ways around this somewhat if you've got multiple specimens, right? In this, of very similar things in the same sorts of places. You can start to pick out statistical lumps and stuff, right? So... Let's say you find there's a variation which you hypothesize is a biological unit. This is a morphologically differentiated thing. But they're found in the same bone bed together, repeatedly, right? Um, Okay, maybe that's just variation within a breeding population. We might, you know, that's evidence that it might be... So, I I don't know. I think the just hypothesizing that morphological difference is related to some sort of to their breeding propensity and stuff. I mean, I agree that it's all we've got, but there are ways to mm. attack it that aren't just throwing our hands up and saying all we've got is morphology. We <clears> do <throat> have stratigraphy and um taphonomy and a whole bunch of stuff to sort of bear relation to that, I guess. So, I think, you know, some yeah, of that might I, solve it for some taxa. It probably won't yeah. solve it for very many, but it might solve it for, well, get us closer to yeah, what yeah, we're yeah, talking yeah. about. Yeah, we, we've, right? we've, got, we've got a raft of statistical techniques, morphometrics, and in recently extinct animals, we've, all, we've got paleogenomics. We've got, you know, a little bit of DNA evidence that can be brought to bear on this. And it's been mentioned a few times, but never really explored. We've also got the possibility of testing for... Um, uh, relevant chemical traces that are preserved in even ancient bone. Like there's this technique, Molditoff analysis, matrix assisted laser desorption, ionization time flight technique, <laughs> where you, you find this um, chemical trace that's like is preserved in a, the mineral component of bone, preserved mm-hmm. in osteocalcin. 
that you can that has been used to differentiate air quotes species from one another in Pleistocene animals, and it could be applied to fossils. I've written about it, but um, no, nobody's done that. But even so, even if you've done that, even if you identify statistically meaningful clusters, obviously with most of our Mesozoic animals, sample sizes are never sufficient to uh, be reliable, it, it, with the exception of like I don't know a handful of species like the horned dinosaurs you mentioned. Um, even with that body of data, it's uh, still it, it still means that those morphologically supportable units are not comparable to think you know extant animals where you, you have to analyze like a thousand individuals from across the range and even then you've got loads of arguments about yeah even then i mean the arguments yeah. about living animals seem to be just as uncertain as the arguments about a lot of fossil ones so you know whatever i don't know it's so something it's, we'll never really solve we're never when like like i said so long as the word species exists and so long as we've got this idea that, that anything that's got a binomial slaps on it a two-part name is comparable to another thing with a binomial and they're clearly not it's like you've got all manner of different kinds of populations of okay okay i've got one more news from the world of news 12 minutes john yeah yeah i've got a news from the world is this news from the world we're still in news from the world of news oh for god's sake we've been going for an hour and 20 minutes already darren Bloody hell. right okay so but i've got one more news from the world of news which is pterosaurs the late Maastrichtian pterosaurs from North Africa in mass extinction of pterosauria at the Cretaceous Paleogene boundary by Nicholas Longrich, Dave Martill and Brian Andrews, um, which is an interesting paper. So there's this notion that pterosaurs were fading out during the Cretaceous. Um, lots of people like to say it was competition from birds. And then really there was virtually nothing left by the end of the Cretaceous, a few giant ash darkets, that's it. Then they went extinct, right? Um, and this paper is challenging that, it's showing a surprising diversity in the latest part of the Cretaceous, um, representing several different clades of pterosaurs. Um, it's an open access paper, you can find it on PLOS Biology, um, and I did the picture, the press release picture for it. Um, did you? I did, yeah. I thought it was by Joshua. Oh, I must have seen the wrong one then. Maybe. I don't know. I meant to, I meant to ask you about that because I knew you were doing one, but the one I saw, I thought was by Joshua Knupa. Well, I don't know. I didn't see the other one. Maybe there is another one. So carry on talking. I didn't mean to stop you. Oh, well, I didn't actually have that much more to say about it. Um, I think I've given the, like, the basic gist ah, of it. Um, okay, that's really weird. Because uh, oh, I've seen, I've read quite a lot of news stories about this, and uh, they've all been accompanied by Joshua's picture, which is, I've, I've, I'm seeing your picture now, which is from the air, looking down on pterosaurs from above. Yeah. Right. And his is you're standing on the beach, looking out towards the sea, and it's got as darkids and nyctosaurs and pteranodontids standing on the beach, and then it's got like a large pteranodontid flying. On the left, I, I, I'd seen that one. I hadn't seen yours. And That's I, interesting. So when I, I haven't seen his. Um, <laughs> have, have you seen it? You're looking at it now. No. What? What? Where is it? Um. This is great podcasting. Yeah, yeah, it's great podcasting. Yeah, I've, I, I can see it as a thumbnail at Earth Archives. Pterosaurs maintained high diversity. Dot dot dot. 
And I, the fact that I've seen that image quite a lot made me think that you'd given up. That you're like, <laughs> no, screw this. <laughs> I got my own photo where to do. Because, uh, yeah. Huh. That's okay, weird. Yeah. So, so I wonder if that, they, they're, they're rolling in so much money, Nick Longwich, Dave Martill, and buddies. We know, we know all these people, I should say. <laughs> um, that, um, they commissioned two. Could that be so? Or did Joshua just do it for free? I actually don't know. Well, well there if they you commissioned go. two, well, good. Well, on them. Good on them. I mean, yeah. yeah, that's good. I, I had not seen yours until now. It's in the Ballywick Express is the only version I'm seeing. Uh, <laughs> okay. It's also, yeah, it's on some of the um, more mainstream ones. But yes, uh, I think that's all I need to say about that. Oh. They're going to give me some angry rant then. No. Shaking your fist at the camera. Oh, I was just pulling your hair out. Um, No, but I I guess I'm interested in it because it does sort of go against the idea that birds outcompeted pterosaurs, whatever that would mean anyway. Um, But this doesn't, I don't know, this this study doesn't, um, isn't in contradiction to that claim because the, and let me make it clear, I'm not supporting things one way or another i i personally don't think that pterosaurs were air quotes out competed by by birds i don't think that's what happened but i do think that birds moved into the um ecological niches whatever we mean by that again that segs back to a previous discussion but uh birds do seem to have taken over these you know these places and ecosystems played by small pterosaurs before so my thinking is that smaller pterosaurs small as in wingspans of like less than 70 centimeters or so they became extinct and for whatever reason new groups did not arise and birds then took over those role because now birds were around and able to do that not that they pushed pterosaurs out yeah but this is the um the argument is between okay so we don't have a lot of pterosaurs at the end of the cretaceous yeah yeah. why is that and so the argument is well one they're not there Right, and that's they weren't there. They're they're going extinct. Um, and the other argument is that there there's taphonomic biases against them. They're not preserved for whatever reason. It's got to do mm. with the rocks and the sorts of places pterosaurs are found. And this is another paper that's in support of it being about taphonomic bias. And there was another yeah. one uh, a few years back. Uh, there's probably been several in between, but that's the one I read. Um, I've forgotten the authors. But yeah, so this is, I think this is sort of a, a running debate and idea. And this is another one in support of taphonomic bias rather than a real decline in pterosaur diversity. Yes? Yep. Yeah, I agree. So uh, yeah, it, the, the fact that this isn't relevant to the, the, the birds versus pterosaurs thing is that these pterosaurs, this is the latest constriction pterosaurs, it seems, um, and they're all big animals and they're not overlapping in size with the birds of the same age and area which aren't you know oceanic gliders and sauras they're um you know they're sort of like gull sized plover sized things but but whatever i take the point totally absolutely agree with the the, the primary contention which is that it's not just as dark it's in the latest mastrictium which is what we had previously thought having said we had previously thought this i mean you know, obviously i personally was familiar with these fossils i've seen them in dave martill's lab for for years they're all from morocco and while this new paper may be a little bit too heavy-handed on the slapping on species name I th- names, I think I think you could argue that that you know they maybe shouldn't have named as many taxa as they did. 
they definitely have pteranodontids and nyctosaurs in addition to uh, astarchids. So it's not just not just astarchids at the end of the Maastrichtian. There is a bit of um, uncertainty about the actual aging. If you actually look at what makes these animals late Maastrichtian, it's not as nailed down as well as you might like it. So I think if you're being super critical, you could say they haven't proved these animals are late Maastrichtian. But I'm pretty confident they are close to... Yeah, you know, they are close to the end of the Cretaceous, the end of the Maastrichtian. And um, yeah, so generally, I quite like this. I think this is, I think this is pretty interesting. I broadly agree with it. One thing I don't agree with is what they say about. They have a little bit in the paper on the ecology of the pterosaurs concerned. Pteranodontids and nyctosaurs, for various reasons, are thought to have been highly oceanic. As darkids. Uh, as is well known, probably to most listeners, there's been a lot of controversy over the, the kind of lifestyles they may have lived. But um, uh, I think that they were mostly animals of continental terrestrial environments, you know, walking around and picking up mid-sized prey. The terrestrial stalking model that Mark Whitten and I yeah, published yeah. in 2008 and yeah, have supported in various papers since. And this paper, they say that because some of these Asdarkids are found in like uh, coastal or marine settings, then maybe some of them were waders or using aquatic resources. I don't have a problem with that at all. That's perfectly fine. I think Mark and I have said that, you know, just because we think they're terrestrial stalkers, that doesn't stop them from doing, you know, they can forage on a beach or on a mudflat or whatever. But the sort of implication i don't want to make a big deal out of it because it's not a big deal in the paper but the implication that they were they some of them could have been waders is like well wading is a very specific and unusual lifestyle that you need to have special adaptations for before you can say you demonstrate it in a fossil and we don't have that for as dark as that's the only point i want to say on that so i had a bit of an argument about this with dave martell and uh, he said yeah but there's all the trackways on mudflats no, there's not, Dave. There's no, there's no trackways of Asdarkids on mudflats. There's like one Asdarkid trackway, and it's, you know, from an inland setting left at the edge of a lake or something. And he said, well, I don't think the trackways prove anything anyway. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, Dave, you win this round. So, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, trackways by themselves are not going to be able to support. So so what if there are trackways on mudflats? I mean, lots of animals leave tra- trackways on mudflats that aren't waders, right? That's how you get trackways, mudflats and shorelines and stuff. Otherwise, yeah. you don't get them. You don't get them on dry terrestrial habitats. Except in exceptional circumstances like volcanic ash and whatnot. Yeah. But um, yes, uh, the the anatomical evidence that we have for Asdarkids is not consistent with wading. But it doesn't mean they, like, as, you, as, as you say, it doesn't mean they can wander around in wet places or, or forage on beaches or, oh, or whatever. I, I'm absolutely sure they can like move around in water that's not too deep. They've got nice long legs and I'm not sure if they could do it if they need to, if they want to. Yeah. If they see something yeah. nice, sure, why not? Um, yeah, I'm just wary about the difference between saying that, which I absolutely agree with, and that's no different from saying that you know people can be waders or giraffes can be waders or sauropods <laughs> can be waders, and saying that they were stilt-like or shorebird, you know, um, sandpiper-like waders, which has been proposed by some workers. It's the favoured model of my best pal, David Peters, and it's like, no, the anatomical evidence is absolutely against commitment to that lifestyle. Yeah, and that's always the that's always the problem with fossils. It's like the fact that animals can do most things. The fact that you know pigs can swim and elephants can climb trees and you know monkeys can sit in hot water in a volcano <laughs> is different from saying that this animal was a tree climber or yeah. this animal was a swimmer in volcanic hot springs. Yes, it's like there's a difference in 
yeah, yeah. But yeah, what they did and what they are adapted to do are actually different things, right? Yes, indeed. <laughs> okay, uh, let's move on to cash for questions then, huh? Yeah, that was twelve minutes. That pterosaur thing. You, you're definitely recording. Yeah, don't stop. Okay, uh, let's just dive in then. Didn't we do this? I, I, I don't know. I haven't got them open. Hold on. Yeah, Madhu Rao. We did Madhu's question about books on marine reptiles. Yes. Oh, this is a different question. Okay. Right, so we have to do this one then as well. Give me a number, please. And just to remind listeners, we are winding down Cash for Questions. We'll still talk about things if people want us to, I guess. And we still like money. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, in that it supports our efforts because we need to cover our hosting costs and such. That's what I mean. Not snorting it away at nightclubs and cocaine stuff or anything like that. Um, <laughs> no. It's all about the yee. The what? <laughs> the E? <laughs> Crystal meth. <laughs> um, uh, okay, look. Um, it's number 133. Jesus. Madhu Rao. <laughs> Curious whether modern reptiles show the same amount of integumentary variety diversity that dinosaurs and pterosaurs did. did the, by this, I mean we see ceratopsians with quills. Not sure of the origin of those. Pterosaurs with fuzz. Ornithischians with primi- primitive feather-like structures. Yet now th- nowadays it seems like all reptiles are universally scaly. Question mark. Right. Thank you for the question. That came via my Patreon. And if you support me on Patreon, you can ask unlimited cash for questions. Do you see the irony there? It just said that. Yeah. Basing yeah. out cash for questions. Um, so, <laughs> well, you can ask, okay. but they won't be answered. <laughs> I, I have to. I have to change. Obviously, the wording on that. So this is an interesting question, and um, there is some really weird diversity in the integumentary structures. So the scales and whatnot that cover the bodies of living uh, reptiles. They do not possess quill or hair-like structures as do dinosaurs and pterosaurs. And as some of you will know, there is a discussion as to whether the quills or proto-feathers or whatever you want to call them, the integumentary fibers, pycnofibers, as some of the pterosaurs, there is an argument as to whether they are um, genetically homologous with feathers. It's been proposed that the fibers in dinosaurs and pterosaurs have the same evolutionary origin and thus genetic origin as modern feathers. That's a justification for them calling them proto-feathers. We just don't know that, and partly for that reason, I I prefer not to use the term proto-feathers. That's why I call them quills or integumentary structures or integumentary fibers. Um, um, Now, we we, we did this whole thing ages ago about scales, the fact that the structures called scales are non-homologous. So the things that we call scales have got different evolutionary origins. And in reptiles, the structures that we call scales in, say, crocodilians and other archosaurs, on the face represent cracking of uh, a single sheet of epidermis, but on the body are non-overlapping discrete sections, like rounded keratin structures. But on squamates, snakes, lizards, and amphisbanians, they are the crazy weird. 
really insanely weird. Now, it's been, a, it's been a while since I read up on this, but my recollection is that squamates actually have like finger-like growths out of the epidermis. So like imagine the epidermis, you should have got these like little finger-like papillae growing right. up out of it. And then each papilla has got um, uh, keratin, like forming like a shield on the top and on the bottom. Like a hat. So there's these, oh, and on like the bottom. A, yeah, so like there's there's both dorsal and ventral tiling huh. of um, these like papillae like structures. So there's sort of like a sort of fleshy blood vessely interior, and that's why the scales overlap one another because they are these discrete separate growths out of the skin. There are some living squamates that are even said to the scales are meant to be mobile and that some of them can erect their scales. I'm pretty sure that's right. If you look at some lizards, they can do that. But um, so. They're weird. Then what, what's happened in some squamates, and the uh, exemplar for this is the hairy bush viper. <laughs> uh, hairy bush vipers, uh, a group of African uh, arboreal uh, little vipers, they've got their scales have become these like long sort of hair-like structures. Um, so there are some hair-like structures uh, that have evolved from these weird scales in squamates. And then there are also those bristle-tailed snakes where the um there are these like sort of long filament-like things uh, mm-hmm. that form like a brush-like structure at the tail tip which they kind of wiggle and use as a lure because it looks like a an arthropod of some sort it looks like a leggy arthropod uh, which they you know use to lure in uh, birds that they grab and uh, succumb uh, su- no, uh, subdue even uh Reminds yeah. me of that line in Thor Ragnarok. <laughs> Thor's talking about his brother Loki, and he says, oh, "Loki's really bad. Once he uh, once he tricked me by pretending to be a snake because I saw a snake, and I really like snakes, and uh, I, I really admire them. And I picked this up too, admire it. It turned back into Loki. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, nice. try and get in those Marvel references just for you, John. Yeah, nice um, superhero reference. Yeah, right, right where I least expect it. Yeah, pam, bow right in the face. Um, other thing <laughs> is that, that in Power in the kisser, <laughs> or Power Ranger right in the kisser, as uh, Emma's now in the habit of saying. Um, <laughs> Power Rangers. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, I've got to write Voltron. Voltron. I've got to write that down. I'll come back to that. Down, write that down. Um, okay, good. At least some squamates get this. This will blow your mind, uh-huh. John. Some squamates at the base of the scale have got a filament a filament, little tiny microfilament tucked away at the base of the scale. And it has been proposed that that is another feather homologue. And that diap- this is evidence that diapsids have all got the genetic architecture for the growth of follicled, feathery-type keratinous structures. There are doubtless other examples missing. I'm because sh- I remember that in the in devising the imaginary parallel universe known as the Squamozoic, I've got loads of animals in that that are covered in fibrous structures that give them insulation or workers' defence or used in display. And I can't remember where I got that from, but I think that's based on lizards that have got long filament-like uh, spines. Because of course I, I mentioned the. Bush vipers, hairy bush vipers. Um, there's also um, some skinks that have got um, pseudo hair-like or spiny uh, overlapping scales. That like fence, fence. It's a big thing that fences. <coughs> <are running. laughs> 
American Defense Lizards. If you were to, you know, imagine slap on another 20, 30 million years of evolution and imagine those uh, spine-like uh, scales, you know, becoming much longer, then they would look uh, like pseudo hairs. But they don't exist in the real world, so I, I don't even know why I'm saying that. I should yeah, just shut yeah. up. Um, but I think that what's interesting here is the whole bunch of things that look like scales that are... Well, they are scales. Let's say scales is the um, the morphological sort of structure that actually come from different things. So there's a tremendous amount of... Well, there's a lot of genetic diversity in what cause, causes scales, and the morphological diversity in some ways doesn't reflect that genetic diversity. It's quite interesting. Um, and I guess... It tells you that the um, the same thing can come from different genetics because it's, it's probably in many ways simple to make something. You want something hard on the edge and out exterior of your body. You can do it a number of different ways, and just mm. different different things do it different ways. And I used to be very much, I think, in favour of the idea that you know the. Pterosaur hair and the stuff you get on ornithischians was the homologous with feathers, and I've I've started to rethink that because I think that actually a lot of this stuff is a very easy to evolve if you want it, if you need it, and small warm-blooded animals are going to want some sort of insulation, and it's actually tremendously easy to evolve it from any number of different in any number of different ways, and I think mm. that's I think this diversity amongst reptiles is living reptiles, excluding birds. <sighs> it's partly because they're all ectothermic, right? They don't need this diversity. Nearly all, yeah. Yeah, nearly yeah. all ectothermic. All right, fair enough. But so you, you, there's not much... The, the pressure is for a hard outer covering. It's not for yeah. insulation uh, or any of the things which might derive a, a very yeah. different-looking structure. Yes, yeah, so this is uh, this is Paul Barrett's uh, argument, and that of a few other people as well. That the 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 majority view among dinosaur workers is that the the quilly-like structures on ornithischians are homologous with the pycnofibers of pterosaurs and with the feathers and feather-like structures of theropods. Most of us are looking at the fact that that's the most likely explanation is they evolved once at the base of the pterosaur dinosaur clade. But Paul and others have sort of said, well. Okay, they've come up with the, the, their argument is a bit more complex than that. We have covered this before on the podcast as well, mm-hmm. but uh, but they say that no, some of these things in like, Ornithischians they could be of a separate evolutionary origin. And there was a paper published about two years ago which argued that the Calindrodromius fibers, Calindrodromius is a small Asian uh, Ornithischian dinosaur that seems to have complex ribbon-like and hair-like structures all over the place on its body. Um, some people have said those those shouldn't be called fibers; they shouldn't be regarded as homologous with theropod fibers um they are instead weird ass you know spiny scale things and um at the moment i would say that neither one of these ideas is objectionable because we again lack the ability to test the things we would need to test in order to get a firm answer like because you need to know the detailed molecular structure the different forms of keratin that are involved in their formation and in their uh, embryology and obviously we just don't have that information yeah. so I think at the moment in the absence of better data it's like 
they could be homologous. I mean, I, I sort of prefer that idea. I think that's that feels more likely to me. But I, it won't hurt my feelings if it turns out that Ornithischians ancestrally were, uh, you know, totally scaly. And then at some point they re-evolved, or say evolved or re-evolved, you know, fuzz. Yeah, see, we've also- I guess what I'm saying is that I wouldn't be surprised if, okay, so the original dinosaur had some sort of, you know, hair-like structure because it was a warm-blooded animal that, wanted some insulation it was lost when it got a bit bigger or something and re-evolved i mean this just stuff wouldn't surprise me it just does seem quite flexible is yeah, I guess well, what i'm thinking that- well don't we don't we we have reason to think that like the genes involved in the formation of feathers are like there in lots of these reptiles anyway i think mm. wasn't wasn't there some study about them being present in crocodilians or something so um yeah so there yeah. you go we, another thing we won't know and can't know but Look I think my... I think that was, yep, very nice. My heterodontosaurus. Heterodontosaurus, mm. yep. It's for the book. Um, so I think that's <laughs> answered. Uh, yeah, they do have variety, but it's kind of uh, some of some of it's invisible because it looks the same, but is actually from a different origin. And there is actually variety there, but not as much as dinosaurs, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's doubtless other stuff that we haven't mentioned. Yeah, there. But I think so, I do think we could probably safely say that dinosaurs seem to have had a wider morphological variety of integumentary structures than than living non-avian reptiles. Yes. Yes. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so hope that's a, a useful and interesting answer, or one of the two. <laughs> Okay, so that's, that's one question down. Okay, one question down. Okay, this is from Devin Myers. So, what tetrapod clades do you think would have been most successful in the world? Were, were there no Triassic-Jurassic yeah. extinction? Yeah, H. Oh, sorry, yes, yes, you're right. Where? I was correcting it because... And then I realised it didn't make... It made the sentence worse. Sorry, Devin. Right. Okay, let's start this again. <laughs> what tetrapod clays do you see this is what we should stop cash for questions because i am absolutely terrible at reading things out loud i have one verbal stream so if something's going in it's very difficult for it to go out at the same time right what tetrapod clays do you think would be successful in a world where no tetrapod jurassic extinction occurred do you think Jurassic. Triassic, Jurassic. <laughs> do you think dinosaurs would have been dominant in most ecosystems as they were in our timeline uh, I'm working on a pretty extensive project based on that scenario, and I'd love to hear what you ta- your take on it. Without giving too much away, he's got a free ebook. Coelophysids and non-mammalian mammaliforms as some of the biggest successes. Okay, so what okay, do you think? a long question, Devin. Yeah. Do you think he's like Devin or Devon? I didn't. Couldn't hear the difference. Okay, uh, Devin or Devon. I don't know. It's like I discovered. I discovered the other day. This 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 amazed me, and it, let's see if it amazes you as well. Do you know there are two interpretations of the title of the book by Richard Dawkins, "The Selfish Gene." Yes. And um, what's with that? It's like it's obvious to me what it means, but loads of people think it means a different thing from what it means. Hasn't Dawkins said it was deliberate, and he liked both? Oh no, I, I wasn't aware of that. No. Yeah. Mm, well, there you go. <laughs> okay, that's not it. <laughs> I thought it meant that the genes in the generic fluffy sense of what genes are 
are selfish, as yeah. in they want to perpetuate. Yeah. Not that there is a specific gene that is advent is the to do with the promotion of selfishness. But, okay, right, right. Yeah, well, I mean, he's obviously Dawkins is not saying that there is a specific gene that promotes selfishness, yeah. but Even I have read interviews where he says he did like that. Mm. He thought it was a good little sort of double meaning, <laughs> okay. because it was sort of about the idea as do genetics make us selfish, right? Yeah. All right. So back to Devin's question. Um, well, I kind of think that we might know the answer to this because what we know is that prior to the uh, one or two extinction events happening at the end of the Triassic, terrestrial faunas and um, near shore shallow water faunas as well were dominated or certainly, you know, um, strongly. Yeah, I'll stick with dominated. It was crocline archosaurs that were the big deal in the late Triassic. I'm pretty f- sure we've covered this as well on previous on previous episode. Maybe because of a question we got, I don't remember. And what we now know about uh, late Triassic crocline archosaurs is that they were doing loads of interesting things, like there were omnivores and herbivores. There were bipedal carnivores, bipedal long-necked omnivores. There were large armor-plated herbivores and omnivores, and uh, you know, also amphibious taxa and, and fully aquatic taxa and so on, and large quadrupedal predators and small quadrupedal predators. Uh, it seems that they were doing lots of things that um, were uh, done by other groups like dinosaurs and much later on mammals and lepidosaurs as well and that that is your default mesozoic your default mesozoic the situation in the triassic is that um it's a croc line archosaur world and air quotes it should have been like that was it not for the was were it not for these extinctions that knocked them out and basically killed all of them apart from the lineage that led to crocodilians proper so if there is no end triassic extinction event mm-hmm. wouldn't you still have all those crocline archosaurs dominating all of these environments and if you were then you'd have all these other groups lepidosaurs turtles um stem mammals and members of the dinosaur lineage you would have those but you'd have them as like furtive little beasts skulking around in the undergrowth and living in burrows and scrambling up trees but you wouldn't have them evolving into you know hundreds of kilo behemoth things Mm. um yeah it's difficult to displace the ruling uh it's difficult to displace things that have evolved into niches i shouldn't say ruling it's just big the the niches for big animals it's difficult to displace them if they're already there right Mm, without yeah. these so, big extinction events they probably just don't you just don't get yeah. it it's just not the opportunity to do it and it's not it's not to do we we do tend we we humans whenever we write about this we do have a tendency to think of it in terms of winners and losers victors versus the subjugated which is absolutely not tr- accurate at all mm-hmm. i'm sure i don't need to say that but kind of do because it's like let's say um so, so the the mesozoic of the real timeline, dinosaurs were dominant, as in like 
they occupied the majority of terrestrial niches they're living out in the sun and having a beautiful life <sighs> and the mammals are these you know skulking little dirty oh. shadowy beasts right horrible little things scavenging off carcasses and chewing at beetles like oh it's a miserable life i want to be out there evolving into a cow or whatever but in actual fact there's like you think about those those little mammals and near mammals there's millions and millions of the little things millions of them hundreds of species they are totally successful in evolutionary terms however you want to measure that you know diversity disparity numbers of individuals blah 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 the blah. only the only place they might lose out to dinosaurs is biomass yeah but even then but even then are you sure no because, not sure no. because yeah because because there's modern faunas where a biomass in uh, i'm thinking of the appalachian forests in um in north america we're like these are forests that have got wolves bears and deer or certainly they did have historically and yet the bulk of the biomass is made up of salamanders there's literally that many salamanders that they make up most animal tissue so you can understand it could be conceivable that you could have mesozoic environments where yeah in in a 10 kilometer square area there's like this is a, this is a great place for dinosaurs because there's five tyrannosaurs here and there's a, there's a herd of 10 sauropods and you know there's, there's a herd of triceratopses but even so yeah in that 10 square kilometers there are those things but then at the same time there's like seven million multituberculates and (laughs) and there's like 20 million metatherians that are like every tree has got like 100 mammals in it every burrow is home to like you know six families yeah and stuff so so they weren't they were not non-successful they were not failures because they weren't they weren't these big animals that we regard as the the you know the ecosystem engineers or the controllers of the environment or the primary consumers and there is some ten- i said there's some technical research on this there's a there was a paper published a couple of years ago by i think steve brasati led it and i think it was in science and it was specifically about the like the the ecological space the morpho space taken up by the different arcosol groups and if you looked at the in Triassic pattern, it was croc line archosaurs, uh, Rausukians, Aetosaurs, um, uh, Crocodilomorphs, and, and others. They were like filling a large area of morphospace that was like, you know, very, very rough figures here, but it was like 30 times bigger than the space filled up by dinosaurs. And then when they're knocked out because of these one or two end Triassic extinction events, You've got the dinosaurs that are left over are still occupying that really crappy, tiny area of morphospace, space. And then it takes dinosaurs like about, you know, 10 to 15 million years to expand into those ranges that bought that range of body sizes and shapes mm. to um, to take over the, the morphospace space previously occupied by crocline archosaurs. Yeah, I mean, and you don't really need to do like morphometrics and have scatter plots to see this just think about your early early jurassic dinosaurs and just think about how similar they all are right they're just they're kind of similar animals you don't have mm-hmm. things like you know sauropods versus stegosaurs well actually they're probably a bad example sauropods versus um small dromaeosaurs and things like this right you know nothing like that back then they're all sort of new leggy somewhat small-headed sort of bipedal-ish sort of things right yeah Yeah. 
So I assume that's what Devin's getting at when he says because the way he's written Triassic slash Jurassic, I assume I assume Devin that you're talking about the extinction at the end of the Triassic, and not that you mean the end whatever happened at the end of the Jurassic as well. Because there's meant to have been some stuff that happened at the end of the Jurassic. No, no, no this is referring uh, yeah. to the Triassic, end of okay. Triassic extinction. So if that didn't happen, crocline archosaurs. Yeah, and um, um, yeah, I, that that that's that's my answer, and I hope that's useful. And I specifically wrote a flipping article about this, and I did a reconstruction of the Jurassic as if it was controlled by crocodile archosaurs, and I came up with hypothetical um, sort of dinosaur mimicking crocodile archosaurs that had filled the different roles that were occupied by the dinosaurs. But I didn't do the um, the uh, kind of tried and tested and, and erroneous technique of just saying how do we make how do we make a crocodile narcosaur into a sauropod how do we make a crocodile narcosaur into an allosaur I didn't do that I actually did say you know what would have happened to shuvasaurs if they'd continued evolving for another 60 million years what would happen to aetosaurs if they'd continued evolving for another 60 million years that kind of stuff mm. and uh, wrote this long article came up with this really cool illustration and then the magazine that published the article didn't publish it but <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. I, there is there is a section of text on it, and I, I would I'm inclined to go dig it out, but I, I can't do that now. It takes too long. Okay, done. Okay, um, yeah. this is from Emily O'Brien. I would like recommendations for audiobooks, podcasts, video where the visuals don't matter very much, etc. To help fill my work day, I'm interested mostly in topics you discuss on Tet Zoo, although movies less so because I manage <laughs> to watch one movie a year. <laughs> um, and especially. And especially interested in snakes. I would listen to someone reading textbooks or technical papers aloud, even though you can't hear the diagrams. Ho, ho, ho. Well. Well. Well, 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 Emily. Wellity, wellity, well. I've got some good news for you, Emily. Because there's a whole bunch of other podcasts. And there's one in particular. Okay. Hey, you guys at Herp Highlights better send me some money because I'm going to plug you big time now. So there is a podcast called Herpetological Highlights. It's uh, led by Thomas Major and Ben Marshall. And fortnightly episodes, I believe they are up to episode 22. And so every fortnight they talk in fairly entertaining fashion about um, uh, exciting research from the world of reptiles, frequently snakes. So herpetological highlights, they are on Twitter at herphighlights, <laughs> one word. And if you Google herpetological highlights or herp highlights, I, I don't know and I'm not going to do it now, but I suspect you'll be able to find them that away. So, um, yeah, so check them out. They sound like your proverbial cup of tea. Um, as, to, as for other suggestions, I mean, I listen to quite a lot of podcasts now mm. while, while I'm working. I mean, because I've got to do like I – can't, I can't listen to stuff while I'm writing, but I can listen to stuff while I'm drawing. And I have to do a lot of drawing at the moment because of, of book projects. So Sharon Hill's podcast is worth a listen if you're interested in uh, scientific – skepticism she covers all manner of uh, takes on interesting developments um, but you know in terms of 
people who cover the same sort of stuff that we do. Uh, I'm kind of that. I'm afraid that's because I, I can think of people who specifically like. Like I also listen to Monster Talk, which is devoted to discussions of the paranormal and you know skeptical takes on things about ghosts and monsters and stuff like that. That's a little bit of overlap with us, but not so much. Um, yeah, and yeah. there are other podcasts, obviously, but I don't listen to podcasts about what we do because uh, it feels like too much. Oh, I have to listen to this one twice, at least. <laughs> and I've had enough. But, but we so, haven't heard of yeah, have you heard of them because I haven't heard of people that that cover evolutionary biology no and there's sort of Ooh. paleontology stuff obviously um, yeah. but I you know I'm sure you found sorry who's who's this from Emily I'm sure Emily's found these things I mean you just enter paleo podcast or whatever you'll find them but oh I can't God, specifically gonna, recommend them because I don't really listen to them they're going to they're going to hate us for not mentioning them well there's um, paleo after dark and paleo cast yeah. Um, uh, there's a couple of others, but um, as I say, I don't actually listen to podcasts about this stuff um, because I get sick no, of it. He's not interested. I get sick of it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He gets sick of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I'm all bloody people talking about foraminiferans. Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. Well, I've got lots of interests. So I like a lot of my podcasting is uh, my podcast time is spent listening to stuff about my other interests, not not biology and paleo. So yeah, I, I yeah. don't have good answers to this. Um, I used to listen to a lot of the skeptical podcasts, but I don't think that Emily's really asking for those. No, that's why I'm not mentioning them. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, often they're they're the better scientific podcasts. I like their formats a lot because they're a bit argumentative, I guess. Um, makes them yeah. more interesting, but well, I, I've been thinking about us having like we should have guests on where we actually fight with them, you know, actual, yeah. actual proper arguments. Yeah, <laughs> shouting, shouting well, like, the whole thing. We'll, we'll come back, come back to it at the end. But the the because of dis- the discovering Bigfoot movie, we should definitely talk about that. But um, yeah, so a bit of a, I think this is a, a somewhat scattershot answer in uncharacteristic fashion. Mm. There are, as John says, there are good skeptical sciencey things. There are general science things like the infinite monkey. Infinite Monkey Cage. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's a, is it Brian Cox and someone else? Or? Yeah, I forget what it. Yeah, there's a yeah, there's a bunch of general science stuff. There's a bunch of like borderline skeptical takes on paranormal stuff, but that's not what we do. There's a million, 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 million movie review podcasts I've discovered. I've been listening to a couple of them for just just to just so I can bone up on my knowledge about superhero movies to annoy John with. Um. <laughs> But I'm not, and and there's a, and also, as John says, there's also a bunch of paleontologically themed ones like Paleocast. Yeah. So we should be nice to them because not that they're nice to us. <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> I think I think some of the people involved are like our buddies and stuff. But uh, yeah, um, Paleocast and another one. Paleo After Dark seems to Paleo be, After Dark. Yeah. I had, a, I had a go at Paleo After Dark. And I think they've listened to us a couple of times. Maybe they listen to us regularly. Hi, if you do. Love your stuff. <laughs> um, but 
And then because Emily, because you mentioned snakes, it's your own fault. That's why I'm telling you about herp highlights. Oh, that, so I think herp highlights is perfect. That sounds exactly right. There okay, that's a good answer. I think. All right. Yeah. And there's also Albert, our friend Alberta Claw or Albert Chen. I know that he and a colleague they do a podcast. Um, and and it covers sort of like you know general general stuff, uh, similar similar to us. But um, but but otherwise. I'm not familiar with people that kind of cover the, the uh, the brain. The <laughs> I was going to say brain and ret. <laughs> the the range and ret that we do yeah. at the same level of professionality and oh yeah yeah and uh, so with, with gravitas and fortitude. Is that the right word? And knowledge of the lexicon. Much professional, very fortitude. Wow. Drinking okay. game. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this question from Richard Hing. Oh no 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 no! Can't do that one. Don't say it. Leave it. Oh, okay. Bad Leave luck, it. Richard. Uh-huh. Right from Donald Lester. There, there is a reason for that. I'm not just being mean. There's a reason for it. As in, I need to go away and read. <laughs> sure it is, Darren. Sure it is. <clears throat> okay. Um. How many Donald, more of these are going to do? Uh, well, we'll just one more. We'll do one more because look, have you sure. seen how many we 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 kind of kind of wanted to get this done in the next two episodes? <laughs> uh, so we're done. This with was a really things. successful strategy. <laughs> a year or two I, back, okay. This is from Donald Esker. Shut up now. A year or two back, Donald, Darren hypothesized that tusks in proboscideans evolved from through sexual selection. Paleogene proboscideans. <laughs> oh God. Now I can't say it. Proboscideans had tusks, but I am unaware of any study showing sexual amorphism in them. Is it possible that early tusks were functional and sexual selection took over later? P.S. Talk about tortoises, particularly pancake tortoises. They're awesome. You know what to do. Well, I I think we'll probably just cover the, the original question there, huh? Unless you really yeah. want to talk about tortoises, but we don't really have time. Uh, yeah, I'd like to, but that that'll have to that'll have to wait. Um, I think that our um, g- uh, discussion about uh, sexual selection and tusks was does it explain the differences in those proboscideans that definitely have sexual dimorphism? So like the Asian elephant where uh, males virtually always have tusks and females virtually always don't have tusks, we were saying that in those animals it's evidence that whatever they're doing with their tusks is is driven by sexual selection. But again, I can't remember what I said or what either of us said or both of us said or whatever, but um, that doesn't that that doesn't mean that that's the story for the or that's not the explanation for the origin of tusks mm. and that that they started their history with these large protruding incisor teeth because uh big incisors are present in other afrotherian mammals and the very earliest proboscideans stem proboscideans like merotherium and, and uh, sagotherium and whatnot they've got like not not tusks in the sense of giant spikes sticking out of the face, but they do have like p- big procumbent protruding incisors that are in other animals like dugongs are of the the kind that you call um tusks. So they started with tusks, and then later on there's this sexual 
dimorphism led by sexual uh, that's driven by sexual selection superimposed on top of that and i also i i would like donald i am not aware of studies demonstrating sexual dimorphism in uh, early proboscideans in uh, paleogene ones which might just be that i haven't i haven't looked hard enough and i haven't read the right stuff it might be that it hasn't been documented um oh there it is baritherium <laughs> okay so <laughs> baritherium is uh, an eocene and uh, early oligocene north african proboscidean and um it's exactly the kind of um animal we have in mind uh oh okay right so i i, I just saw a reference to sexual dimorphism in this animal but it doesn't seem first of all wikipedia says citation needed <laughs> after <laughs> the claim of sexual dimorphism and it doesn't seem that it pertains to tusks so that was a uh okay what would you call it a blind alley so if you could edit that bit out john yeah sure uh, um so, Okay, so you were wrong. No, I wasn't wrong. Hey. <laughs> you were right all along. <laughs> I was right all along. Um, yeah, okay. So, because so this, is, I, this makes sense, that um, sexual um, uh, selection grabs hold of something that is there anyway, right? Some sort of functional thing or something. Nice and so, right, that's something we can work on. <laughs> you thought it, not me. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. But I think that's uh, picking apart uh, sexual selection from, let's call it functional selection. Uh, it can be difficult, especially in the early stages, and, you know, even sexual dimorphism uh, doesn't necessarily. Theoretically, at least, doesn't necessarily tell you that um, it's sexually selected. <clears throat> it could be that mm. the males and females do different things and therefore need different anatomies. It's not necessarily that the females prefer the uh, let's let's say the females prefer that feature. Yeah. It's just necessary because the m males are doing something different. And also, uh, caveat sexual selection does not require sexual dimorphism. Yeah, we've, talked, what Kevin yeah, yeah. we've talked about yeah. that several times. That's why I didn't say yeah. it. But I was saying, conversely, sexual dimorphism doesn't actually tell you that sexual selection has taken place. It um, probably does, but it doesn't have to. You, yeah, it, yeah, it doesn't have to, but ordinarily it does. Because obviously, yeah, you're right. You can have uh, – you've got these cases where the sexes are – doing different things ecologically or functionally yeah. or, or or whatever yeah. or there's just some um you know ontogenetic trajectories are different like males tend to become bigger so they get like a proportionally bigger head or whatever um <clears throat> it is it's messy and all these things are overlapping none of these things are sort of that is only functional and doesn't have a role in sociosexual display and that is only sociosexual and isn't related to ontogeny or uh so yeah I, uh, that's what makes that's what that's what makes this subject, you know, elephant, the proboscidean tusk, particularly difficult to talk about. Combine that with the fact that nobody's bloody done any work on it; just a few assertions here and there in the literature, as we've established. But um, again, I can't remember what we said in that episode, whichever one it was. But my thinking is that it is consistent with the whole of Donald's question here. It is, he says, is it possible that early tusks were functional and sexual selection took over later? Yes, that is totally what we're going for here. 
and and I would again correct me if I'm wrong and I probably am I don't know but my thinking is that that is consistent with what we were saying last time okay otherwise otherwise wouldn't have spent so much time um, concentrating on elephants specifically Asian elephants and them being weird compared to other elephants where males and females have similar sized tusks in at least some taxa except others that don't so it's I don't know it's all over the place really right done <laughs> that's the end of the podcast is it yes it's way too long well, I think we can't go into popular tat this week we have to do it some other time it's, it's all right it's, we're already into two two hours 15 minutes yeah and people like short podcasts <laughs> gotta, gotta well, it down to like 20 minutes yep um we were go- okay we, we were going to talk about annihilation because i've oh, just watched it seen it uh, the Cloverfield Paradox. Haven't which seen it. You, okay, don't watch it. You complete waste of time. But we still have to talk about it. I want to talk about it. Well, I it's want to talk awful. about it. I, you can't talk about it without me seeing it. Okay, fine. Right. So, Cloverfield Paradox. Go and watch that. It was on Netflix. Okay, it's on Netflix. And right. at some point, we have to discuss the Todd Standing movie, Discovering Bigfoot. Unfortunately, that would mean you have to watch that as well. Okay. <sighs> Oh, damn it. Oh, so I wrote down stuff. I, I, I want to talk about Voltron. Age of Voltron? No. Voltron. The Voltron we already talked about the Age of love Voltron. Because it's now a multi-part anime series. <laughs> and it was originally, watched wasn't it? it? Well, I don't know. You're the one who watched it. I never saw it. Look, I was a kid. I, I don't know. I don't know. Well, it was Japanese. Does that make it anime? Or does was it, it have to be specifically... So was it cartoon? Yeah. Well, then... Was okay. it Ten, Japanese uh, cartoon in the 80s? Well, it could have been anime. It's hard to say. It probably wasn't if it was like, you know, you're watching it as a kid in Australia. But um, What do you mean? It, it, because anime is like a sort of more adult, styly, more recently... Um, uh, what do you call it when you send stuff out into the world? More recently, like, you know, popularised thing. The word then, anime like, is a Japanese term for animation. Okay, fine, then it's anime. Right, move on. <laughs> so there's new Voltron, and I watched all of it, so I was an expert on it. So I could Vibrant so I could... characters and fantastical themes. I, I just, I don't... Look, um, what's the other one? Astro Boy that I used to watch. That's definitely anime. And okay. that uh, Seven Cities of Gold one, what was that called? That's that also called... anime. Really? I think so. Oh. And so Voltron, although... <clears throat> Yeah, I think Vol- Voltron is anime. Okay, Glad we got into this. Sailor yeah. Moon, that's definitely anime. Yes. Devil Man, definitely anime. Akira, I don't know, manga, anime. Oh my God, how many res- how many things are we going to get in response to this? Stop! <laughs> stop, John, stop! Um, when we were talking about feathers, uh, Madhu's question, I forgot to talk about Podothiki, the fact uh, that some of the scales on birds' feet, they reckon, were are. So, so, so hang, on, hang on, hang on, hang on. That was just so you could say, Voltron, there's a new animated series, I've seen it. Yeah. That's it. That's all you wanted to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. This, because I know, I know how much you love it. I wanted to remind I, you. I love how you just back. Do, everything's just a little shout out. <laughs> Everything's about you. <laughs> I thought you were going to say. Were you going to say that? No, because that's about me. <laughs> Everything's a little shout out. Jibber. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> okay. Okay. Right. 
Right, where can they the find agenda. you? Oh, no, 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 we're going we're gonna to skip that. <laughs> we're ending the podcast. I'm ending right. the podcast now. Whatever's got to, got to go in the next podcast. We're done. Right, um, we're as done as superheroes in my household. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I blog at uh, Tedgeboard's already currently hosted at Scientific American. <sighs> if you like what we do... There's a whole list of podcasts that you can listen to at the site where the podcast is hosted on the internet. And um, books. My latest book is called Evolution in Minutes. I think I've mentioned it. Did I mention Dinosaurs in the Wild? Showing in London until the end of July. Once or twice. I tweet at... (laughs) Luke... Luke, Ben, you go to the Dagobah system. Dagobah system? There you will learn. <laughs> there you will learn from Yoda, the Jedi Master who instructed me. Ben, Ben. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, You're also on the internet. <clears throat> yep. Uh, website's johnconway.co. My Twitter is at the John Conway. Ignore the other John Conways. They're not as good. <laughs> so <you're> the- <sighs> Especially okay. those two mathematicians. Now, I've got, well, I think we should mention Patreon because I think I will set up the new Patreon and have it by the time we launch this podcast. So I uh, set it up at patreon.com forward slash tetrapodcats. Is it live? Not yet, but it will oh. be when this podcast goes. Oh, okay. thought I'd miss something there. Nope. Um, <clears throat> so, we have a reward system. It might sound similar to Cash for Questions, but it's a little bit different. So, we're probably going to do some like exclusive little mini episodes that we'll only upload to Patreon. And they will be, the content for them will be questions we get from people that support us on Patreon. Um, We don't promise to answer your questions. We don't promise how many we'll make. Um, But it would be great if you could support us on Patreon. Keep this podcast going. Um, We both spend quite a bit of time on it. My God, two and a half hours today. And then I have to spend all that time again editing it. And... um, that's not to, not to mention just like all the knowledge and stuff that has to go into it. So uh, if you like the podcast, consider supporting us. Uh, one pound an episode is where it starts. You can actually give us less than that. That's okay. Um, but I don't think you get the rewards. But that's all right. You know, if you want to support for less than that, that's fine. Um, anything you want to say about that? <clears throat> well, not really. Um, obviously that I will be changing the settings and descriptions and stuff on my own Patreon. Although I checked it and I never was asking for assistance with the podcast because that was coming from a different pot, as it were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think we both put on our Patreons that you get cash for questions as rewards. And obviously that's not going to be the case anymore on our individual Patreon sites. Um, okay, I think that's it. Let's finish up. Done. Okay, bye.
a reading from True Giants. Is Gigantopithecus Still Alive? by Mark A. Hall and Lauren Coleman. There is a basis in modern science for discussing the existence of genuine giants of this size. But you may be wondering why, outside of storybooks, you haven't been hearing about them before this. There are two reasons. First, the existence of true giants is not a popular idea. Such things are not supposed to be real. So when people have reported them in places like the Cairngorms in the northern United Kingdom, in Southeast Asia and in Canada, they have been regarded as mistaken or even dishonest tales. Secondly, the fossils that have been found for this particular giant primate have been attributed not to a giant man, but erroneously to a giant ape. There is no basis in the fossils themselves to support this determination. Rather, it has been merely a popular prejudice among the fossil specialists to make this categorization. Some people have suggested that the fossils, known as Gigantopithecus, are gigantic men. We believe that view will one day be proven correct. Gigantopithecus-sized bones have been found in many places around the globe, but those bones were lost in recent centuries before good notice was taken of them and proper descriptions could be recorded. No one has been running around deliberately looking for gigantic bones in those places. Instead, such bones are still only sought in geological deposits that are a half million years old or older. Someday, the finding of more gigantic bones in proper scientific digs will validate a true prehistoric record for true giants. But we do know a little something of these giants today. They have been in the news in places like Southeast Asia for decades, and in late 2005 became a news sensation once again. The world was treated to news dispatches from the southern interior of the Malay Peninsula. Everyone was reading about the Orang Dalam, or interior man, of Johor. Gigantic footprints were found, and hairy man-like figures were reportedly seen. They were 10 feet tall and more. 